The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, good evening, everyone, and welcome to IMC. And um, when I was here two weeks ago, we began. I began a series of talks. Probably I'll do another eight of them or so. Uh, kind of an introduction to Buddhism, and um, it's a grand thing to say you're going to introduce Buddhism. And what it means uh, for someone who's a Buddhist teacher is you're going to introduce. I'm going to introduce the Buddhism of our tradition. What it really means is I'm going to introduce you to the Buddhism of IMC. What it really means is I'm going to introduce you to the Buddhism that uh, I have. <laughs> and, um, you know, in the end, that's really what you have. <clears throat> you know, the tendency is to kind of believe sometimes that a Buddhist teacher knows what Buddhism is and what they say Buddhism is, that's what it is. But there are so many different lineages, denominations, schools, traditions, um, variations in Buddhism. And then once you kind of get under the hood of Buddhist teachings, uh, see what's really going on, um, rather than having this abstract, perfect, primordial, unchanged teachings from the Buddha that have been handed down perfectly intact, no variation, right down to the present moment. And you'll get it, you'll get, that's what you get. Um, Really what you're getting always is you're getting the synthesis, the interpretation, the adaptation, the application of Buddhist teachings that people have heard and studied through their own practice, through their own experience, and through their own background and dispositions and all kinds of things. And it's always getting reformulated and redone. Of course, uh, Buddhist teachers seldom admit this because uh, then your teachings don't have as much authority. And uh, you have more authority if you say, this is what the Buddha teaches. You know, this is Buddhism, you know, and, and you better, this is it. Um, but, you know, there really is no Buddhism. It's an abstraction, it's a vague idea, and, um, and you're always getting it th- through the interpretation of someone. Uh, I think it's probably fair to say, to tell you a little bit to emphasize this, how care you need to do, you know, the care you need in listening to these people who present Buddhism to you, whether it's like me teaching or in books. And that is for most of these 2,500 years that Buddhism has been taught, it's mostly been taught by men. And, you know, it's probably a good thing that anybody teaches, but uh, some men have a certain, you know, I don't know what they have. (laughs) You know, 
maybe some men have certain peculiarities that influence how they teach and what they say and what they want to present and what they think is important. And um, <clears throat> so, so anyway, I think it's actually a very important idea to keep in mind. It's somewhat discouraging to people to hear this, that uh, there is no pristine, perfect Buddhism. Uh, what there is is the interpretation that someone's presenting to you. It's rare that people admit that, and I'm admitting it to you. That's what you're getting. Some of you will never come back. Because <laughs> down the street, you can get the pristine purpose of Buddhism because the teacher there says, this is what it is. No lengthy introductions that builds up the case. It's just like, okay, here you're going to hear the truth here. Boom. And uh, so I think it's a little bit unusual to be so frank about it, but it's, you know, I, I've done a lot of study of this. I've studied what people teach. I've studied the variations. I've studied... I've been on this thing for a long time and uh, trying to tease out what's going on. And, and one of the wonderful expressions that I first heard in Zen is um, that how Buddhism is passed down through the generations is warm hand to warm hand. And, uh, and that's actually very important that the books and the so-called you know, teachings of what Buddhism is uh, that you might get from a book or something that's not really what where Buddha, really the essence of Buddhism is found. It's found in the relationship between the generations of people, uh, you know, passing it down from one generation to the next. It's it's a living tradition, uh, where the living connection, and that um, ideally that uh, the people who are passing it on don't necessarily have the perfect pristine formulation of what Buddhism is but rather that they've somehow been transformed by their contact with Buddhism and Buddhist practice. And they know something about what some people consider the essence of Buddhism, some interpretations. They know something about liberation, about freedom. They know something about the end of suffering. They know something about awakening, to use a big word that's also kind of abstract. Um, and uh, and they know it for themselves, and that and that essence or that what they know somehow is passed on. But then you know you get into this world of Buddhism, and you start talking to people about what they think awakening is or liberation is, and then believe it or not, people will argue about what liberation is. What what liberation is there in arguing about liberation? <clears throat> But still, this idea that there, you know, there is something that is passed on, something's understood, something here—that's that's one of the theories, one of the ideas. It's this is where it's found. Maybe where Buddhism is found is uh, around this principle of liberation from suffering, and it's found in each individual practitioner grappling with that, finding that, looking for it, practicing for it discovering what that means for themselves and discovering it in new and deeper and fuller ways as they go on with the practice. And I would say that that's true for me, that uh, I've been doing this now for well over 40 years. And, um, and I'm just uh, delighted and amazed at uh, the continued opening for me, the continued discovery, the continual kind of expansion. And, you know, after doing it for 10 years, and then I look back and say, oh, it's different than what I thought. 
and then do it for 20 years, and it's, wow, it's kind of different than I thought. <laughs> then do it 30 years, and wow, there's more here. This is like, oh, maybe now I'm getting hang of it. Then do another 40 years, and wow, it's like it keeps opening up. It keep, I keep learning and discovering, and well, I must be getting to the end now. So we'll see in 10 years. Uh, but the pattern is it just keeps growing and developing new dimensions of this freedom, this freedom thing. <clears throat> uh, so at the heart of it, one of the hearts you can say is this, that, because, uh, uh, you know, to, to use the authority of the Buddha and the reference of Buddha, what he taught, he made a very powerful statement a long time ago. And the fact that uh, this person who founded Buddhism and there were many of us who look back to with a degree of reverence and respect, um, and kind of wanted to encapsulate what he teaches in this little statement, um, you know, it's kind of noteworthy. It's, it kind of stands in contrast, maybe, to a lot of other religious traditions who make a short statement of what their religions really is at the essence. It kind of expresses the flavor of what this man was about. He said that um, what I teach is suffering and the end of suffering. He points people to understand in a deep way the nature of suffering. Or he points to people to take a good, deep, honest look at how you have distress, you have fear, you have, you have, uh, uh, you know, that you have, uh, you're troubled in some way, you have anxiety, you have distress, you know, something. In Buddhism, we tend to use the word suffering. Really take an honest look at that. But not so that you just suffer better, but rather so that you um, can look through, see through it. And they sometimes use the word penetrate it to the other side to the place where you're free from suffering. And, um, and that's what really kind of these 44 plus years I've been doing is I keep discovering new dimensions of this, new ways and this works. And, and, um, and I find you know, phenomenally grateful for my teachers. And, um, and the place where I've discovered the most freedom is in doing this Vipassana practice. So this is one of the reasons I teach Vipassana because I found in my travels through Buddhism that uh, this seemed to open the door to a deeper and deeper discovery of, in the heart, in the mind, within, of what freedom is, this liberation. And, um, and so uh, I like teaching in this tradition. A lot of that has to do with the tremendous power of mindfulness. Mindfulness is a practice of being honest. Mindfulness is a practice of really stopping to be present First, learning to be present, which is no small task, and stay present in in your experience. And then learning to be phenomenally honest about what's here. And that just keeps opening up. You start discovering and seeing more and more different aspects of your life and how your mind works. And and then if you're lucky, if you do that that work really, really deeply, really look and be still and focused and clear and develop a certain degree of capacity for really concentrated looking deep into this, your mind and heart. And if you're lucky enough, uh, you, you get a new operating system. Isn't that nice? You know, uh, you get an upgrade. <laughs> but, uh, you know, many people don't get a new operating system. Many people uh, just have the same operating system and they adjust it a little bit and they patch it. 
little bit, and um, they learn how to work with the for the kinks in it, and, and uh, you know they get maybe they get passively by in their life, but to um, to really do this practice to have discover the ability to get very very clear in the mind, so the agitations and the preoccupations, the bias, the fears, the um, you know the uh, the attachments of the mind are not kind of crowding or, or filtering or clouding over our ability to see. But to be able to be mindful enough, there's this clarity happens in the mind, space in the mind, quiet in the mind, openness in the mind, to really, really, it sounds like you really see deep inside. The metaphor that the Buddha used for this kind of deep seeing into the mind, I think is a beautiful metaphor. He uses the metaphor of a clear lake, completely clear, and you're standing on the edge of the lake, and uh, maybe there's no no wind or anything, so it's a clear surface, and you're able to look into the water, and um, you can see what's there. You see the little rocks on the ground and and on the lake bottom. You see the the shellfish, the the, the little shell animals that are going around, uh, or shells. I think that some translators call it oysters, oyster shells in the water, and uh, fish swimming around. I always imagine the, swish, the fish in this metaphor are swimming slowly around. And, uh, and so this idea of the mind becomes so clear that you really see what's there as if you're looking into a, a completely clear body of water and you can look right down to the bottom and everything is so evident. And the mind is the, is the water. And so often the mind is uh, agitated, the mind is, there's mud that's been stirred up and it's cloudy. But to be able to learn how the mindfulness can settle the mind and really clear away, um, you know, all these concepts and ideas and preoccupations and fears and future thinking and past thinking and planning and, and entertainment that goes on in there and have it really be peaceful and clear that's not a teaching. That's not like, you don't have to believe Buddhism for that. Uh, that's why I can so confidently talk about Buddhism as interpretation by a teacher, because it's actually not that important, believe it or not. In contrast to this amazing clarity of the heart and the mind that's possible, that's where it's kind of, that's, that's like a human um, capacity that's kind of in your birthright to be able to come to that capacity, to touch into that, to be there, to have that kind of calm and subtleness. Uh, that's just, an, that's an experience, that's a path of practice, that's a clearing away. Um, you don't have to have a religion to tell you that um, you should clean your windshield wipers once in a while. You know, it's, it's just, you, you know, you, you just clear your windshield wipes, wipers. Uh, you know, you, not your wiper, windshield, clear your windshield clean your windshield, uh, it's, um, you know, you clean your windshields, then you see clearly. Do you want to build a religion around that? <laughs> you know, my religion is better than, than yours because I have a better way of cleaning my windshield than you do have, have for you cleaning your windshield. So it's ridiculous, right? So, so at Buddhism, the heart of it is this capacity for this clarity. Imagine this clarity that we're capable of experiencing, of being. There's a lot of letting go that has to happen to get there. 
a lot of discovery of how we get, how we're conceited, caught up in self, how we create a, a divisions in our minds between self and others, self and the world, how we um, uh, hold on to these precious ideas, hold on to ideas of um, identity, of status, of pleasure, of fear, of our wounds, our resentments. There's all this kind of layers and layers of stuff that produces the cloudiness of the mind that doesn't see clearly. And so to settle the mind down deeply, to quiet it deeply, and then have this clarity, wow, imagine that. So are you getting a sense of the contrast between a religion and clarity of mind? So that's your birthright. Wow, that's great. If you did that, what do you see? You start seeing. If you, if you clean your windshield a little bit, then you notice when there's a bird dropping on it. You know, splat. But if the, if the windshield is really, really dirty and it's full of bird splats, you wouldn't see the next one. If it's really pristinely clear and there's no dust or any smudges on your windshield whatsoever, you'll notice the little, little smudge that comes up, that appears. And it's really obvious. And, you, and if you've never had a clean windshield and you've been driving around for decades in a dirty windshield, it's like a revelation. Wow, it's possible to have a clean windshield? I'm not always straining to kind of look out the window. Wow, this is amazing. So as people do this practice, it's kind of like that kind of amazement. Wow, I did, I, first of all, I, I didn't know I had smudges. I didn't know that I was kind of going along with the mind that was so cloudy or so caught up in concerns and fears. And I thought it was just built into the fabric of the universe that I was supposed to always be thinking at 10,000 miles an hour. Or I'm always supposed to be you know, th- thinking about multitasking, doing all, thinking all kinds of things, or jumping around from one thought to another in concern, or planning tomorrow forever. You know, whatever it is, I always, I just just took it for granted that's how it is. One of the things that people take for granted that they don't even know they're doing it is how much self-preoccupation there is. It's phenomenal for some people, not for the few of course, but (laughs) it's it's just phenomenal how much self-concern, preoccupations, conceit there is about me, myself, and mine, and all this kind of stuff about me and I. And uh, turns out, without doing any kind of disrespect for me, myself, and mine, without any disrespect for even conceit that goes on, without saying anything about it that's bad or that's good or anything, just let it be, be, don't evaluate it, don't judge it in any way, but discover what it's like to not have it. Discover what it's like to go through a day or a minute, complete that part of the windshield completely cleared out. And then you'll see, well, wait a minute. Why should I bring it back in? It's so much better without it. I seem to function better. I take care of myself fine. I see more clearly. I see myself more clearly. I'm more peaceful and more at ease. And if you have a choice about whether or not to bring the self back in, the self-concern, ideas, and conceit, why would you do it? It's so good without it. Is that a religion? Is that an obligation? Is that saying you should? Is that saying that the self is bad? 
I would, I'd like to suggest you don't have to see it that way. You just know that it's better to have the windshield clean. It's better to have a mind that's not caught up in these things. So if you're able to use the practice to settle deep enough into this, into this inner world, to clean it out or settle or be open, or be, then at some point um, the, um, there is something that the Buddhism calls liberation. And that the point, the thing about liberation uh, uh, is actually discovered has been happening all along. The word is vimuti, and vimuti is often used for full liberation, but it's also used for a lot of the small liberations along the way. If you get a little bit of concentrated, and so you're no longer thinking about what happened at work today, then you have vimuti from work. And for some of you who we're sitting in meditation today, or I guess today there wasn't much job works for some of us. It's a holiday, but but um, you know if you're caught up in something that troubled you and it was kind of a headache or stressful to be thinking about it, it's really nice to sit and settle and have that kind of settle away and not have it bothering you anymore when you're sitting here. And that's a vimutti. That's a small liberation, maybe temporary. If you are um, impatient for something to happen that you have no control over and you see your impatience your impatience and then somehow able to just let go of it that's a liberation it's a temporary liberation if you um, were hoping to go home and have um, you know carrot salad for supper and you look forward to carrot salad and you couldn't wait to make it. You even like making carrot salad and you like putting raisins in it. And, and you know, you can't wait. You're just fantasizing all day about carrot salad. And, uh, and you open the refrigerator and there's no carrots. And you're so disappointed and you're disappointed in yourself. How could you waste the whole day thinking about carrots when you can't own a carrots at home? So you kind of beat yourself up. And, and then you, it occurs to you to be mindful and you say, wait a minute. I don't have to think this way. I can just accept there's no carrots and figure out what else to have for dinner. There's a letting go. I'm trying to use simple everyday examples, but uh, we have this kind of, uh, this letting go, this liberation in many, many small ways. The Buddhist path is to take that idea of liberation that's accessible to all of us and do it more and more thoroughly, more fully, more deeply. And to do it more deeply and more thoroughly, we need help. Uh, Help meaning that uh, we need to kind of uh, develop ourselves, cultivate our capacity for meditation, for mindfulness, for honesty, for stillness, for non-distractibility, to create the conditions within us that we can really bring this mindfulness into the corners and crook and uh, crannies of our minds into the roots of it and really, really get down. And, and it's kind of phenomenal how far you can do this work. And that is what I like to believe the Buddha discovered for us. He didn't discover liberation. Everyone has some, some idea what that is, letting go or stopping, if you think about it. You have to, you can't get through life without having to let go of something. But to really understand how fully and thoroughly you can clean the windshield, how fully and thoroughly you can let go of this and be liberated from what goes on deep inside is so dramatic, so clear and so thorough. 
it's kind of like you get rebooted with a new operating system. And I use that kind of language because uh, the operating system of many people who operate is, is based on, it's uh, programmed with greed, hate, and delusion. With a certain kind of greediness or wanting or getting or, or an aversion, a pushing away. Or, or sometimes the operating system is a lot of fear or delusion. And these strong compulsions to want to have and to get or the strong compulsions to push things away or be aversive or angry or hateful is a huge part of human life. And that also happens in small degrees. People who seem perfectly nice people will have small movements of it. Or it's the underlying depth of their, of their operating system. I've seen in myself uh, times where I thought I was compassionate. And at some degree, maybe I was. When I really got under it deeply, I saw that I, was, I had a desire, a craving, a, de- a clinging to, an idea of I wanted to be a good person. And I hoped a lot of people saw how compassionate I was. Maybe it's okay, I still got the compassion thing done, I helped someone, so I, I, you know, I don't want to make it too, make, be too upset about it. But, uh, but it's uh, to discover that underneath that compassion there was still a clinging to self, to being seen a certain way and a concept of who I wanted to be, a good person or something, to see that and and clear that from the windshield is a fantastic thing. Wow, that's fantastic. And so you do this deep, deep work of clearing out greed, hate, and delusion. And then the new operating system is one that knows we can go through our life and take care of ourselves in the world without being motivated by greed, hate, and delusion. That's the new operating system that Buddhism offers, or points to. And, um, and it's pointing to something which is, you can find out and discover for yourself. It does not, it's not like you have to believe it. It's not that you have to kind of uh, compare it to other religions. It's really, it's Buddhism, all the teachings of Buddhism are really meant to be a mirror or a pointing into yourself that you have the capacity to clean your window, clean your mind. And so much good comes out of that. One of the forms of liberation and freedom that the, the vimuttis that the Buddha talked about is the liberation that comes from loving kindness, the liberation that comes from compassion, the liberation that comes with sympathetic joy, appreciative joy, and this, uh, and the liberation that comes from equanimity, that somehow to to be liberated and be freed in a way that brings forth your heart's capacity for compassion and love, and that that's connected to liberation. So, what do you have to let go of to have love? What do you have to let go of to have compassion? Not a duty to be loving, not a duty to be compassionate, but it's the nature of the heart to be that way. And so one of the ways to, uh, one of the forms of liberation that these ancient texts talk about is the liberation through love, love, liberation through compassion. That's pretty cool. And to discover that capacity, it is not just the capacity of being free from a dirty windshield, um, but it's uh, free to be able to, I don't know, maybe I don't know if this metaphor works, but 
um, that you have a lot of seats in your car and you can bring everyone along. You know, you don't have to be a lonely driver and you can just, you know, share it with everyone or participate with everyone in some deeper way. So, uh, an introduction to Buddhism series, I felt it was important. Last week, last time I talked, I talked about the life of the Buddha. Uh, and, uh, but what made the Buddha the Buddha was his uh, very deep, thorough experience of liberation. Exactly what that experience was, um, maybe we'll never quite know. We have lots of texts and lots of teachings that point to what it might be. But we don't have to be completely clear that we know what it is. We don't have to know the results to, uh, to understand that this mindfulness practice, the meditation practices that Buddhism offers, the ethical practices it offers, the wisdom practices or teachings that it teaches, that they are all useful for us to discover liberation, vimutti, in small ways, and then middling ways, and then bigger ways, and then the biggest kind of possible way that this is a this is a possibility that's that's where we're finding buddhism you are becoming the buddha or you're becoming the repository the warm hand to warm hand that can demonstrate to express what it is if you keep going to books to find buddhism you're looking in the wrong direction uh, you want to uh, unless those books are functioning as a mirror that you use to look back at yourself to do the work to do the clearing, the cleaning, the work that it is. So here we are. Today is Martin Luther King Day. And it happens to be my favorite Buddhist holiday. A Buddhist holiday, yes. And also the favorite uh, holiday here in the United States because of uh, what the, the work of Martin Luther King. We're not celebrating a war. We're not celebrating fighting. We're not fairly... Um, but we're celebrating uh, someone who was a someone who was a champion of freedom. And, um, and he understood inner freedom. He called it, sometimes he called it spiritual freedom because he had to be transformed to have the courage and the ability to do what he did. Um, you know, he had death, death threats. And he, you know, the story goes, he, t- he wrote about that uh, he was about to give up his work for civil rights because of the daily death threats he and his family were getting. You know, to how many people, because, you know, that's reasonable, right? Your own family, you know, death threats and people in the South are getting bombed and their bombs thrown in their living room, in the, through the window and people being killed and lynched. And it's only, you know, it's within the general, you know, it's in my lifetime that this was going on. And, um, and, uh, and then he had a spiritual transformation. Something happened in him where something got clear, something got emptied, something got opened in his heart, that he, <clears throat> he, he, he then decided, no, he wasn't going to give it up. And he stepped into this dangerous world uh, with his courage, by his inner transformation. <clears throat> and what did he do with it? He focused on the liberation of all human beings. Economic liberation, the end of his, end of his life in the last few years, he was focusing on economic liberation. He felt that was a fundamental problem of this country, maybe more fundamental than uh, than the civil rights or the Vietnam War and all that, that he was, things that he was opposed to. <clears throat> but economic liberation for all people. 
he wrote this, or he said this, I have the audacity to believe that peoples everywhere can have three meals a day for their bodies, education and culture of their minds, education and culture for their minds, and dignity, equality, and freedom for their spirits. Isn't that nice? Dignity, equality, and freedom for their spirits. So he, he knew, they knew something about that. And um, so he was actually kind of uh, beautifully, I think wonderfully inspiring to me, um, all-encompassing in his vision of freedom, of inner freedom and outer freedom, freedom in our society. And to have someone who represent both of those, someone who worked as hard as he did, someone who pointed to the inequities of our society, the prejudice of our society, and, um, and did so this way. In the process of gaining our rightful place, we must not be guilty of wrongful deeds. Let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. We must forever conduct our struggle on the high plane of dignity and discipline. We must not allow our creative protest, our creative political protest, to degenerate into physical violence. And again and again, we must rise to the majestic heights of meeting physical force with soul force. So maybe, what would happen if we take Buddhism, Buddhist practice, and combine it with Kingian action, Kingian view of the world. What a nice combination that would be. The, um, I think that uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was a wonderful partner for Buddhist practice to encourage Buddhists to look for freedom uh, within, but to really use it also, and especially the more free, free we are inside, to use it to really, not just to use it to um, look at the ground in a happy, freer way, but to look around and look at our society and understand it and look at the inequities and the oppressions that go on still to this day and um, be concerned about that. Look for freedom, support the freedom movement wherever there's oppression, wherever people are caught, and whether it's in the heart or whether it's in the world around us. And, um, and this the last quote I gave ends with soul force and uh, sometimes soul power, soul force, people call it. And um, in this wonderful way in which these things come together that um, uh, it's almost certain that uh, this is his uh, translation of, um, of a word by Mahatma Gandhi uh, in uh, uh, Satyagraha. And Satyagraha, Satya means truth. In our tradition, it's an uh, Indian language we use for our text, it's, it's satya. And graha is to hold, hold to the truth. And he calls it power or force. Maybe that's graha can mean that as well in, in Sanskrit. But satya graha, um, that Martin Luther King got this from, uh, from this Indian tradition, the Mahatma Gandhi. Where did he get it from? I'm not saying he got it from Buddhism, but maybe it's, the Indi- it's deeply embedded in the Indian culture. But uh, one of the uh, resolves, one of the dedications that the Buddha taught is dedication of the resolve on truth. 
And so this combination, bringing together these wonderful, seemingly very distant uh, movements towards freedom, where the word freedom is, or liberation is at the heart of their whole enterprise, and seeing that they have something in common. And one of the things I'd like to emphasize today is, um, is a dedication, a holding to, a resolve on truth. And how do we discover the truth for ourselves? I would suggest that one of the ways we do that, one of the ways we can do that, is to clear the windshield. And if you clear the windshield enough of your heart and your mind, you will see the truth with great clarity. And then maybe you'll appreciate everyone in the world who is working towards freedom, everywhere, wherever it might be, your heart will appreciate that uh, the clearing away of oppression, the clearing away of inequities, clearing away of heartlessness that exists in this world. And may on this day of Martin Luther King Jr., may we kind of really reflect a little bit and think deeply about our beautiful capacity to support each other as human beings in this world, to do this work together, to clear our hearts, clear clear our minds, and clear our society of all the things that keep us from being free. May all beings be free. Thank you.